we are um, continuing in our series on building a proper foundation for our lives. Um, Last week, I introduced this series by looking at a couple Bible passages, and I wanted to share them with you again today. The first Bible passage comes from Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. This idea that Jesus is telling us that he has a foundation for us that can provide us stability in the midst of storms and frustrations is a core component of what we're talking about this month and uh, the beginning of this year. But what I found fascinating, I said this last week, and what I find fascinating is that in this passage, Jesus uses the metaphor of a rock. And he also uses that same metaphor in another passage I want to take you to. This is Jesus talking to his disciples right after he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And uh, Peter steps up and he says that Jesus is is the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What's fascinating about both of these passages isn't just that they use the same metaphor, rock. There's some sort of rock foundation that the building needs to take place on. Uh, We need to build our individual lives, and we need to build our church on the same foundation, this rock. What's interesting is that in both of these passages we looked at, there's also an antagonist, a a storm, a hardship of some kind. In in the one in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says the storms came. Here, Jesus refers to the gates of Hades. Now, we're actually going to talk about the gates of Hades in a couple weeks and what that really is all about, but today I just want to acknowledge the fact that Jesus, when he's talking to his followers, whether it's the first followers early on in his ministry or whether it's midway point through his ministry and he's talking about this development of the church, Jesus says there's a foundation that will give you stability in the midst of the hardship in the midst of the storms, in the midst of the antagonism you might face. And so last week I was like, listen, I want that stability in my life. I want to know what it's like to have that kind of rock-solid stability, especially when life gives us so many uncertainties. And it fits for us, because every January I like to kind of revisit the foundations of our church. Every January, I like to go over the, the fundamentals of our church. We call them our core values. And in fact, there are four of them, and wouldn't you know it, we have four more weeks in January to talk about them. Uh, we do that every single year. We take the weeks of January to talk through the fundamentals of our church so that we can prepare ourselves for our Commitment Sunday. If you have never been with us for one of our Commitment Sundays, I'll just remind you all month long of what it is. We take the first Sunday every February to renew our commitments to God and to each other. 
hopefully, at least I'm really hoping, that we'll be able to do all that in person this year, the first Sunday in February. And if we can't be in person, then we'll have to find some other time to do it because it's just that special to us. But we renew our commitments to God and to each other. We start our membership year all over again. We wipe out all past membership and we start fresh. But in order for us to be ready for that commitment Sunday, we need to be people who understand the commitment we're making to God and to each other. And so we always take January to cover these foundations. And Jesus uses this phrase, the rock, to refer to the real foundation that we should have. I think, unsurprisingly to you probably, that there are four basic components of the rock foundation that we need to have as people and as a church. And so today we're going to dig into the first of those core values. Uh, We use a lot of different words to refer to them. The, The most important word is just the word God. We want God to be at the top of every list. But we use a metaphor around here to try to remind us of how essential God is. We say, God is my heir. You can take away my food, you can take away my water, and I'll be okay for a little bit of time. But if you take away my heir, that's all she wrote. And we need to have that kind of mindset with regard to God that he is that important in our everyday life. And so God comes first. But A lot of people say that God comes first, and we don't really dig into the details of what it means to make God first in our lives all the time. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at putting God first from a particular angle of these statements Jesus gave us. In fact, we're going to spend most of our time today with the statement of what Peter said to Jesus and what Jesus says in response to Peter about the rock he's going to build his church on. But before we do that, let me give you a little bit of review. This is last week's lesson. It's the summary lesson for pretty much this entire month. It says this, I follow Jesus with others who follow Jesus, and Jesus builds his church. The foundation of everything that we need to be doing this year, this month, the foundation is that I personally am going to be a Jesus follower. I'm going, to, I'm going to watch what he does and listen to what he says, and I'm going to walk in his steps, and I'm going to follow Jesus. And I want to do that with other people who are following Jesus. I want you to join me, and I want me to join you. I want us to be doing it together so that I'm following Jesus, you're following Jesus, and as we follow him together, Jesus will use us to build a thing he calls the church a thing with strength and stability, a thing with eternal significance. I'm looking forward to every single one of those moments where I get to follow Jesus with you and we get to watch Jesus build his church. But today, we're going to dig deeply into the first and most important rock foundation, the first component, the first element of this foundation. And so let's look in a little bit more detail to that passage where Jesus asks his followers who they think he is. Here it is. Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, he's always the guy who steps up first to speak. I I love him and, you know, because I sometimes talk too quickly too. But anyway, Simon says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus goes on, he says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I want to make a quick comment about this. It is true that in the Greek language, the word Peter or Petros means rock. It usually means pebble or small stone, but it can also mean just the generic rock. And so some people have taken this passage to say, oh, so Jesus is saying to Peter that Peter is the rock upon which the church will be formed. And therefore, Peter is the the cornerstone, the foundation. Peter himself is the foundation, and the church will be built on top of Peter. In in other words, that Peter is like the number one leader, and the succession of leaders from Peter is the most important thing about the church. But I want to remind you that that's not the case. See, Jesus doesn't say, I tell you that you are Peter, and so on you I will build my church. He doesn't say, and Peter, your name means rock, and I'm going to build my church on you, the rock. He doesn't say he's building his church on you. Jesus says he's building his church on this, on this rock. See, what I think Jesus is really saying is he's saying, Peter, listen, man, it's a good thing I nicknamed you Rocky because you just said the thing that's going to be the rock on which I build my church. Jesus isn't referring to Peter himself. He's referring to what he just said. So analyze it with me. Take a look at it with me. And let's find out what Peter actually said and what Jesus responds to Peter about it. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I'm going to leave this up on the screen here for just a little bit because Messiah is an interesting word. Messiah is a word that Peter definitely would have understood. Now, we don't know if Peter was speaking in Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew at this time, but Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. In fact, in our Bibles, in Matthew, it doesn't say Messiah, it actually says Christ, because Matthew was written in Greek, and in Greek, the word that is there in the language is Christos. Because Christos is the Greek word that means something similar to the word Messiah. It's just our translators. In fact, you might have an older translation of the Bible that actually says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Modern translators frequently like to use the Hebrew word because the Hebrew word Messiah means something different than the Greek word Christ. The, The Greek word Christ simply meant to smear something on something or a person who had something smeared on their face. Uh, It's not a very attractive word, but the ancient Jewish people, uh, for them, the anointed was a symbolic thing. A a person who was anointed was a priest, or they were a prophet, or they were a king. It was someone that God had specifically told someone else to put oil on this person to signify that that person was special. And so that's one of the reasons why we translate it as Messiah instead of leaving it as Christ here in this particular verse. But the important thing is that when Peter says the word Messiah, he knows exactly what it means. It means, Jesus, you are the one anointed to be king and priest for the coming age. Jesus, you are the one who was promised 
throughout the entirety of the Old Testament to be our coming Savior, our coming King. Jesus, I affirm that you are the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. When Peter says Messiah, he knows what it means. Problem. When Peter says Son of the living God, he cannot possibly know what words are coming out of his mouth and what they mean. See, the phrase, son of gods, was used frequently in secular culture back then. The Roman, the Roman guard, the Roman leaders, the Roman heads, particularly the Caesars, they would use the phrase, son of gods, to refer to the top authority. You see, the gods were the top authority in their culture, right? And so the king, the Caesar, the emperor, he was the one right underneath the gods, and therefore they would refer to him as a son of the gods. And this happened throughout the ancient world. It happened in Egypt. The pharaohs would call themselves son of the gods, and and the Greeks might do the same thing. But it just so happened that son of God was a very common term for the highest level of human authority. What's interesting, though, is that Jesus never used that phrase for himself. Jesus used the phrase, son of man, for himself, as I mentioned last week. Son of man was a phrase that comes out of the Old Testament, and it specifically shows up in the book of Daniel in a vision where Daniel sees someone that he describes as a son of man who is not seated on God's throne, but approaches the throne and is worshiped as equal to God. In other words, son of man refers to someone who is not on the throne, but is worshiped as God. It's a very interesting kind of concept, someone who's separate from the ancient of days on the throne and yet is worshiped along with the ancient of days on the throne. Son of man refers to this divine being who is different from and yet the same as God. Jesus uses that term for himself. What's fascinating, though, is that Peter says, son of the living God. By saying son of the living God, Peter's like, listen, I'm only talking about the one true God. Not all those false gods. I'm talking about the one who's actually real, the living God. Not all those false gods. And Jesus, you're the son of that God, which means you are somehow connected, linked with that divine nature of God somehow. Now, Peter would have had no idea that Jesus was, as he would say in the book of John, the only begotten son. Peter would have no idea what the Trinity means. He would have no idea what it means to say that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Peter would have no idea what that means. He just spouts words that he could not possibly understand. And Jesus points it out. Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You see, Jesus says, Simon, you just said words that are beyond any human comprehension. You just said words that are beyond any human invention. You just said words that had to come from my Father in heaven. Why am I spending so much time on this? Because Jesus calls this the rock. He said this, the topic we're talking about, 
who Jesus is and how you learn about it is the rock that forms the first part of our foundation. So just to put it in a phrase that you can write down, this is part A. The first part of this whole rock foundation is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's part A. It's half of it. It's the part that, um, the Messiah part is the part that Peter would have known. The Son of the living God part is a part that you and I can begin to understand. But there's a second part of this foundation. It's not just who Jesus is, it's how we get the information. And it is, part B, the truth is revealed by the Father. The truth is revealed by the Father. Now, this is especially important for us in our world today. Because we live in a world where people love revelation. Uh, they, they love to learn new things. They love to experience new things. But there's one revelation that matters more than anything else. And so to put it as one concise, concise phrase, our foundation has to be the Father's revelation of Jesus, Son of God, Messiah. Now, that's a complicated set of words there. If you've been a Christian for a while, if you've attended churches for a while, then it all makes sense to you. Oh, the Father's revelation. Revelation is code word for the Bible. I need to read the Bible. Um, Jesus is the Son of God, right? That, that refers to both his, his birth story and also his ontological reality as being divine. He is God, but God in the flesh. Messiah refers to his job as saving us from our sins and, and being the future king and judge as well and, and being my Lord today. And, and so I understand all of these concepts, but in order for it to be our foundation, I really need to emphasize some things that it is not. A lot of times we get our ideas about who God is. Ideas about who Jesus is. And to clarify it, we need to put it side by side with the things that it definitely is not. So I'm going to give you two things today that our foundation is not. Number one, our foundation is not in the wise words of people. Our foundation is not in the wise words of of people. Remember, Jesus didn't say to Peter, oh, Peter, you had such a flash of insight. I think that's amazing. It's so wonderful that you had such a flash of insight there, Peter. And so I want to acknowledge your flash of insight. No, Jesus says, this didn't even come from you, Peter. You had no idea what this was all about. This is coming from God, my Father in heaven. Our foundation cannot possibly be on what people tell us. And so, I want to just reflect on this a little bit. I find it really interesting that revelation is a really desirable thing. Have you ever noticed how when you're scrolling through that one website that you didn't really want to end on, but it had an interesting article, how all the other ads on that website have basically the same formula? Shocking new result for drivers in Lafayette. Or you can lose weight with this one simple trick. 
or here's the thing that no one will tell you about this other thing. All I have to do is tell you I got some juicy information on Antonio Brown, and some of you who know who Antonio Brown is, are you're, you're like, wait a minute, what? You learned something new about that guy? And some of you who don't know who Antonio Brown is, you're just like, well, there's juicy information. I'm, I'm interested in that. Because we as human beings, we are drawn to revelation. We are drawn to new information. We are drawn to someone bringing to us a secret. There's this lady um, in California who tracked down our YouTube channel at some point in time, watched a couple of my sermons, and this last year has been asking me random questions on Facebook Messenger for pretty much the whole year. And um, it's been really fascinating to me because on the one hand, I don't interact with strangers through Facebook or any other social media or any other thing internet-wise. I, I just don't want to interact with strangers. But I make a couple exceptions for that. One exception is if someone is asking me about the Bible. I want to answer the questions about the Bible. And, and so this lady, she popped into my messenger and was like, hey, I saw you on YouTube and I wanted to become your friend. And so she sent me a friend request and I responded, I don't really do the friend request thing with people I've never met. And we got into a little bit of a conversation, then it died off. But then last April, she sent me a question and she started asking me some things. And I was, I was compelled. I have to answer Bible questions when people ask me Bible questions. And so we've been in this conversation back and forth for almost a year now. And it takes its breaks. And then later on, she'll come back with a question. But I tell you what, she's asking me things about what do I think of Mark Driscoll? What do I think of Joel Osteen? What do I think of Westboro Baptist Church? What do I think of this other thing? What do I think of this other thing? And she constantly brings in these ideas, whether they're from false prophets or false teachers or bad churches. She brings in these ideas and she asks me what I think of them. And almost entirely my response is, please stop watching that YouTube channel. Or please stop following that person on Facebook. Or please stop listening to that person's sermons. And please open up your Bible and read. Like, I spend most of my time in these conversations just saying, open up your Bible and read. Because see, we live in a world where we are so fascinated by revelation that we don't care where it comes from and we don't even care if it's true in many ways. Do you remember back, well, I don't know, maybe you're not old enough to remember. Are you old enough to remember back when Oliver Stone released that movie on JFK's assassination? Did you see that? The movie was called just JFK. And when that movie came out, it was such a success in the box office because Oliver Stone was bringing out a theory of the assassination of JFK that no one else had ever thought of. It was this brand new theory about how the government was kind of in on it. And it was all an inside job, conspiracy theory kind of thing. And he made this major blockbuster movie and people flocked to it and they loved it. Even though everything in that movie was debunked both before and after the movie came out, everybody loved it. They thought it was amazing. It's because we as people, we hunger for revelation. And if someone brings us something that feels like it's revelation or new information, we will gravitate towards it. 
but don't build your foundation on it. It is not stable. The conspiracy theories will change all the time. And the truth, when it is not based on actual truth, will crumble and lead to you losing faith in the real truth. Don't build your foundation on just some words that someone said that sounded interesting or attractive. So what's the solution? Uh, Maybe you're thinking, as most Christians would, well, I need to just you know, pay attention to the Bible. Like I told that one lady, I was like, just read your Bible, get back to the Bible. And if you're thinking that, well, the solution is to have my foundation on the Bible, well, you're getting warmer. You're just not all the way there yet. Because see, here's another thing that our foundation is not. Are you ready for this one? My foundation is not what I think the Bible says. My foundation is not what I think the Bible says. (laughs) This is really important. Because since we love Revelation so much, there's a specific type of Revelation that we love even more. And that's the Revelation that I would call self-discovery. Or the insight of figuring it out for yourself. I know you've been there. If you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably had this experience where you opened up your Bible and you were like, oh God, show me something new. You know, or if you've heard someone say, every time I read the Bible, I, I get something new out of it. You've probably heard people say that before. It's, it's spoken honestly by most people who say it because really, every time I open up the Bible, I see something that I had completely forgotten I had read before, and it's hitting me in a different way today. And so I get to there, and I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. But guess what? What you, what you read and the insight you get might not be right. This is a screenshot of my conversation with that lady that um, I had this last this last year. One of the earliest conversations, she wrote me, the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And I know that Christians ask this question all the time with regard to whether or not God is responsible for bad things happening to people. Here's a man, he's born blind. Who's responsible for that? Did God make it happen? Did the parents, are they to blame or is the man himself to blame and so i were out well sure the parents sinned but that's not what caused his blindness because jesus's point is listen the blindness isn't caused by sin now here's where it got weird she said neither this man nor his parents sinned but this happened so that god the work of god might be displayed in his life I'm saying that Christ is acknowledging the man being able to have sinned before he was born, just as he's acknowledging the parents being able to sin. Or down here at the bottom, she says, the sin is the result of transgression in different lifetimes. Christ is supporting, in the whole context of this, she was saying to me, she believed Christ was supporting reincarnation. And she was like, this passage proves that reincarnation is real because the disciples were assuming that this man could have sinned before he was born, which must mean a previous lifetime. And Jesus, by sort of acknowledging 
a portion of this by saying they didn't sin. Jesus is acknowledging that, yes, the man could have sinned in a past life. And so she had come to this realization that, oh my goodness, reincarnation is there, right there in the Bible. Now, um, I spent a significant amount of time during this conversation trying to help her realize that, no, it wasn't about reincarnation. And no, it wasn't about this man having sinned in a previous life. It took me so much time, and she just wasn't interested in hearing it. Because, see, here's the thing. Sometimes we get so attracted to something that we have discovered, learned, or thought about as we were reading Scripture, that then we conclude that our understanding of Scripture is revelation. And that's a dangerous place to be. As a pastor, I find it to be a very dangerous place for me. I am often tempted to say, oh, here's a thing I found in Scripture. That must be the right way to think about it. And I have to double-check myself with as many different translations or, or commentaries or other scholars as I can to try to figure out, you know, what is probably the right answer. Right now, I'm going through a, a book study trying to reevaluate a number of things that I've read in Scripture just to try to get better at understanding the truth of it. But see, here's the point. My foundation should never be my own interpretation or my own understanding of what the text says. I have to have some other authority that allows me to say, no, I really understand what the Bible means for itself, what real revelation is. And so because I want you to have that kind of foundation, I'm going to give you, the rest of this morning, three things that I think will help you get a clear foundation of the revelation of God about Jesus that you and I can build our lives on. And it begins with this principle. There are two principles for how to understand the Bible. The first principle is that I need to understand the author's intent. I need to understand the author's intent. You see, I said to this lady that the disciples during Jesus' day never, ever, ever would have thought about reincarnation because it was a thing that Jewish people just didn't know about, think about. It wasn't part of their radar. There's absolutely no reason the disciples would have asked Jesus a question implying reincarnation. And so on their mind, when they asked the question, they were just saying, Jesus, Where's the sin? Help us identify the sin so we understand, understand what, what happened to this guy that he was born blind. And Jesus responds, there was no sin. God just has a miracle that he's ready to do in this man's life. And bad things don't always happen because of sin. Bad things don't always happen because God is trying to do a miracle in a person's life. Sometimes bad things happen just because the world is not in its perfect state. But understanding the intent of both the disciples in that story and the author who wrote down that story and Jesus himself, understanding the intent will help. Now, that's a difficult process to go through. You have to understand things like cultural issues. You have to understand things like linguistic issues. You have to understand grammar issues. You have to understand the, the religious background of the people of the day. It's hard work. It's difficult. 
But there's biblical support for this idea. Let me show you this passage from Peter himself. It's fascinating that Peter wrote later on about something where God reveals something to people that they don't even understand when they're, you know, writing down or saying the things that God reveals. Let me show this to you. Peter says this. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love this. Peter says, listen, sometimes the Holy Spirit will speak a word into the heart of a human being, and that person will have no clue what it means. They will just pass it on. That's exactly what happened to Peter when he said, you're the son of the living God. There's no way possible he could have understood the the Trinitarian implications of that statement because in his mind, that was too big. But God revealed it to him and he said it out loud anyway. And Jesus says, yep, that one came from my father. Peter says, sometimes the prophecy of Scripture comes just by the leading of the Holy Spirit, even when the prophet doesn't understand it. Okay, so that leads us to try to understand a couple issues. There are a couple things to be concerned by when it comes to author's intent. There are two layers. One, obvious. What is on the heart and mind of the author when they wrote it? The reason we ask that question is simply because the Holy Spirit was carrying was carrying the prophet or the author or whoever it was when they wrote down what they wrote down. So if the Holy Spirit is carrying them, then the Holy Spirit is moving their heart to feel things and moving their mind to think things. And then because the Holy Spirit is moving their heart and their mind, they write, but something's going on in their heart and their mind. And so the words that are written on the paper reflect what's going on in the heart and the mind of the person doing the communicating. And so we just ask all the linguistic questions. What do we understand they're they're saying there? But there's another layer. There's a second layer of meaning. There is always a part that the person who wrote it didn't fully understand. The person who wrote it didn't fully understand. We see this time and time again, like in Psalm 22 where David the psalmist will talk about his hands and feet being pierced hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented, where he would talk about his uh, people casting lots for his clothing hundreds of years before they did that for Jesus. Uh, When Isaiah writes to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, we understand that was a prophecy meant for those people back then in that day. He had no idea, perhaps, that many years later it would be re-fulfilled in a much more deeply, much more important way with the birth of Jesus. See, there's always, or not maybe not always, but frequently there is a second layer of meaning that the writer themselves didn't understand. But this is also where you and I get into trouble. Because if the writers themselves didn't understand the second layer of meaning, why in the world would you and I ever think that we have the ability to understand that second layer of meaning? Christians do this all the time. 
They will read something in the Bible and they will say, oh, it says this, but it really means this. And then this thing on top of that is the part that really they get excited about. They do it all the time with the book of Revelation. They do it all the time with the Old Testament prophecies. They do it all the time with what Paul wrote. They take what was written and then they put another layer on top of it and they say, this is the extra layer of understanding. Well, listen, if the original guy moved by the Holy Spirit didn't understand it, then I'm not going to claim that I understand that second layer of meaning. Instead, what I will do is I will wait for another person writing Scripture to tell me that second layer of meaning, which is why Matthew spends a large portion of his book telling us the second layer of meaning from all these Old Testament prophecies because Matthew, moved by the Holy Spirit, was able to understand that extra layer from these Old Testament prophecies prophecies. It's not my job to figure out the extra layer. It's my job to be open to what that extra layer might be as revealed in the scripture. Now, I've been speaking in vague terms about this extra layer of understanding, but I want to bring it to more concrete reality for you. I want to bring it to a place where you can kind of take it home. And to do that, There are two things I want to show you, two more principles. A principle of understanding Scripture, and then the biggest principle of all of really how to get at the heart of what Scripture means and what that extra layer of meaning might be. But first, I'm going to show you this passage that people almost never talk about when it comes to understanding Scripture. Check this out. In Hebrews... It says, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. And Christians use this this passage all the time to say, see, there's a milk layer of meaning and there's a meat layer layer of meaning. And so there's all this milk down here that people are spending their time with, but I want to get to the real stuff. I want to get to the meat. How do I get to the real food? Well, let's just imagine what this passage might mean, and let's just get some sort of insight about the second layer of meaning on this passage. No, Hebrews is going to tell us. Watch. It's going to tell us straight out, solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. See, the point in Hebrews is that in order to learn what Scripture really means, in order to learn the meat of the Bible, in order to learn the meat of the revelation of God, in order to learn what God really has for us, you know, that extra stuff that we all kind of want, We have to do what we know. Another way to phrase that is to say, I learn by living. I learn by living. This is a challenge. I've spent a lot of time, a lot of time in churches. I've been to a lot of Bible studies, I've been to a lot of church services, been to a lot of worship services. And one thing that is is true consistently in my own heart and in my own life is that I'm much more eager to learn a new thing than I am to do what I've already learned. 
I'll just give you a very simple example. I've, I've said this before. When I was in college, a friend of mine said to me, you know, if, if we Christians would just live half of what we believe, we'd be incredible people. Take the one simplest command Jesus ever gave. Love your neighbor as yourself. Take the command even before that. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you were to just forget about the entirety of the rest of Scripture and just do those two things, love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself, that would be incredible. There are supposedly a billion Christians on the planet. What would it look like if a billion Christians on the planet were absolutely committed to loving God above all other things and loving their neighbors as themselves? What if those were the primary two things that Christians the world over were known by, were known for? What if in this town those two things were the things that Christians were identified by? If we just got those two things right, there'd be such a huge difference in this world. But i got to be honest with you. I'm way more interested in reading a new passage of Scripture and reading a new person's thoughts on that passage of Scripture than I am loving my neighbor. Even though loving my neighbor is something I can literally do every single day, reading that passage of Scripture might give me a flash of insight that I'd never had before. See, the challenge that we face is that we are people who are tempted to get revelation without ever living it out. And God has told us that to do so locks you into a life of infancy. You'll never understand the true revelation that you're reading because you'll always see it through the eyes of immaturity. But once we begin to discipline ourselves to do what we know, then we can begin to understand the other layers of significance and meaning on the text as we are walking with the Spirit through it. This is, a, this is an interesting thing. But I want to give you something really tangible to take home with you. Something really tangible to take home with you. And it's a it's a framework for understanding the Bible that I think will help you moving forward. It's inspired by a couple things Jesus said, so let me take you to something Jesus said here. Jesus says to his disciples, I have much more to say to you. In other words, Jesus says, I've taught you a lot, but there's a lot more that you should learn, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And there's a lot in this passage that I love and long for. It's like, I want to hear the Spirit speak to me. I want the Spirit to tell me things that uh, before now I couldn't bear. I want the Spirit to give me all the secret information about what is yet to come. I want all this revelation of the Spirit. But pay attention to that last line. Jesus says, it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. 
In other words, the key thing the Spirit is going to tell me, the key thing the Spirit is going to tell you, is something about Jesus. Something about Jesus. The key thing the Spirit is going to reveal to us is something about Jesus. So, here's the tangible thing I want to leave with you. I want to leave with you this idea that what I need more than anything else is I need to see the revelation of God for what it really is through the lens of Jesus. Everything God wants to reveal to me is going to either be about Jesus, from Jesus, or pointing me to Jesus. Everything that God is revealing, going all the way back to the rock upon which the church is going to be built, it's the Father's revelation that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. The Father's revelation that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. That's the foundation. It's not the Bible and how I interpret it. It's not what someone else has to say. It is, where do I find Jesus in the text? And what does the text tell me about Jesus? Two questions I want to give you. The two questions go like this. What does this passage reveal about Jesus? And what does Jesus reveal about this passage? I want to encourage you to dig yourself deeply this year into God's Word. But not digging deeply into God's Word to ask yourself all kinds of questions about what's the latest spiritual loophole that I can employ so that I can do the thing that I want. Or digging into the Bible to say, what's the latest mystical secret that I can have and and just be excited that I know. Dig into Scripture with this agenda completely. I want to know what it says about my Savior. And so, no matter what passage you're reading, what does this passage reveal to me about Jesus? And what does Jesus reveal about this passage? This week, what I want to do is I want to write for you a couple blog posts to kind of outline this. The first one I'm going to do is going to take a passage from the book of Deuteronomy. And it's a passage where God says he's going to destroy people. And I'm going to say, okay, well, what does that passage have to teach us about Jesus? And does Jesus teach us anything about that passage? And I want to show you as we go through that this week, kind of how to employ this in your life, how to practice this in your life. But the bottom line is, I want you to be people who join me in making this our foundation. To say, I want to build my life on a Jesus-centered understanding of God's Word. A Jesus-centered understanding of God's Word. There are a lot of things that we can build our lives on. Jesus himself called this the rock. When Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, you got that from my dad. Put those two things together and we understand that the first foundation we have is an allegiance to the revelation of the Father that points us to understand the reality of Jesus. I will build my life on a Jesus-centered understanding of God's Word. This year, as we prepare our hearts for our commitment Sunday, as we prepare our hearts for living 2022 in a way that honors God and blesses the people around us, I want to invite you to join me to be people who firmly place your feet on the foundation of God's Word. 
but do so with an absolute conviction that God's Word's purpose and its point is to lead us to Jesus. I'm going to see all of the Bible through the lens of Jesus, and I'm going to see what I can learn about Jesus through the pages of the Scripture. The second layer of meaning, I don't need to find it for myself. It's Jesus. He is the ultimate destination for everything the Scripture is pointing to. And so, this year, join me. Let's be people who build our foundation on the Word of God as it reveals Jesus. A Jesus-centered understanding of God's Word. This week, join me online through the blog and our social media so that we can um, explore these thoughts a little bit more deeply. Keep your ears open and your social media feeds open to our church's informational pages so that you can pay attention to what's going on next week. But let's pray together. And let's ask God right now to just simply lead us into this week. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, Check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.